cinematic odyssey through the rock universe from Greece to glitter and beyond the story of a sound the man who created it the girl who sang it the monster who stole it and the phantom who haunts the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. I want to shake and sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody And you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that them. I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker. And boy, oh boy, for those of you that have been listening to this show, all five of you for the past three years, boy, do we got a treat for you. Well, maybe, maybe a treat for some of you. It's going to be a letdown. We're going to lose at least three of the five of you, but, uh, Unfortunately, my former co-host and co-founder of the podcast, uh, Patty Cakes Mitchell, he uh, went out for a pack of smokes and he decided to not come back. (laughs) So uh, I had to go and find me some new pod daddies. This is like this is this is like Saved by the Bell, the new class. Yeah, it is. (laughs) It really is. This is the cool, hip, new upgrade. It's a uh, no, midnight. See, this, is, this isn't. This isn't Saved by the Bell, the new class. This is the 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 clueless television show. That's what oh, this fuck. is. I was gonna say, is this the the the, the reboot of fucking Full House? <laughs> oh my god! Fuller, here it is, Fuller House. 
Featuring, and, featuring Candace Cameron, my, my current favorite person in the news. Jesus. Yeah. Well, Makes anyways. a grown man want to cry. In case you guys didn't gather, we've got two new uh, hosts here on the pod. Uh, one of them you may know from way, way back. We've had him on before, and that's uh, my friend uh, John Caution, a.k.a. Hoffman. He was on our uh, Flixtober series a couple years ago when we were talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And uh, apparently, uh, according to his memory and mythology, he wiped up the mat with uh, me and uh, my former co-host on that one. That's uh, that's debatable on that. But anyways, hey, John, good to have you back on and maybe as a as a permanent fixture here, at least. Let's hope. Let's hope if, if if my family doesn't completely drive me fucking insane before before we can get a few episodes in. Well, don't worry. I'm going to recommend some porn for you to watch for the podcast, and that'll alienate them, and then you won't have to worry about them. There we go. I knew we'd have a plan. <laughs> We're good. And then uh, on the other mic, we got an old, old, old-timey friend of mine, Mr. Uh, what I call you, uh, Cheeto Man Man. Manshire, Cheeto Manshire on the mic there. Uh, old Joey Potatoes Manshire. Hey, ho. Old che- che- Cheeto Manshire there on the mic. That's Mr. Uh, Mr. Brandon. Sorry, you'll have to you'll have to give your preferred uh, surname. My what, name's what, Brandon. What? Brandon Hayden. I'll fucking kill you. Thank you, Brandon Hayden. Sorry, I didn't want to call you by your unpreferred uh, surname. Can I just but call Brandon you? Hayden. Can I just call you Brandon Walsh? If I, I'd I can like ca- to call you Brandon Walsh. If I can call you John Cho. It sounds like a plan. I, I knew so, we'd make a deal right, right away. Yeah. So as you can see, we're already cooking. Uh, Brandon's an old friend of mine and friend of the pod. He's one of the five people that listens to the podcast regularly. And now he's on the podcast. So there we go. Now we're down to one person that's going to listen to the podcast. Boom. Simple math. <laughs> Occam's razor. Right. So, yeah. So we got a little uh, – we're going to try out a little new format here. We're, we're still kind of testing the waters, seeing how it goes. This is the beta test. Um, and because I like continuity, I didn't want to leave people hanging because the last episode we aired, I did say that the movie we're going to watch for the next episode was Brian De Palma's rock opera, Phantom of the Paradise. And I'm a man that sticks to his word. And here we go. I, uh, threw it at these gentlemen to have a little bit of a discussion about this, in my opinion, cult classic uh from the 70s so that's what we're here to do but before we get into that just you know i want to you know get things a little snappy warm things up a little bit maybe do a little bit of uh off the top um i don't know john maybe give some of your bona fides here and tell 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 the audience why do you want to be on a shitty movie podcast (laughs) well first of all every single thing i do in my life is shitty so a second that second that. <laughs> so you know, from my music to my my work ethic to you know, well, I guess you know what I would hope that my daughter would not say that I was a shitty father. That's like the one thing that I actually like take some pride in. But everything else is pretty much a big joke. So you know, it's perfect for me to be on this thing. I, I think it fits like a glove. I mean, so- I, I, yeah. Would you say you're you're okay with like being like most fathers, fair to midland, a fair to midland father, um, but not shitty? 
So, so I will say that this is the one, this is the one thing where I, I demand like perfection from myself. And if, because of that, obviously perfection is unattainable. And I think that that will end up me being a pretty damn great father because of the efforts I'm making. So well, that's, that's like how I, I achieve, you know, my 95% greatness when it comes to being a father by, by basically thinking, okay, this is the one thing I have to be per- perfect at. Um, well, then everything sir- else is like, everything else is like grade F effort, you know, like, the most minimal possible effort you can put into anything is pretty much everything else. Well, that's definitely that's uh, that's definitely honorable for you to state. Definitely don't follow don't follow in the footsteps of uh, my former pod daddy and go out for that pack of smokes there in <laughs> Chicago and never come back. Hey, uh, straight edge. and also, hey, satisfaction is the death of desire, my friend. So keep it up. <laughs> oh man! All okay, right. so we'll just talk about hate breed for a while. <laughs> this, this is going to turn into a hate breed podcast. <laughs> Wait, this, this, not, this I isn't. I, I think I already have a hate breed podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like I got duped. I thought that's all this was. <laughs> you have you have lost a host and a fan. <laughs> Damn, like that. Just I, you know, I. I'm, you know, I'm good at pissing people off, so that's that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, enough about that. Uh, let's move it on to you, Brandon. Again, uh, same thing. What's your bona fides? Why do you want to be on this show with us fucking chuckleheads? Well, uh, I too play stupid music, and I'm real bad at it. Um, I complain a lot. You know, I, I basically that's all I do in my bands. Um, the only thing that'll get me out to a bar is knowing that I can scream in fucking drunk people's faces. And so I, if I just am complaining all the time, at least I can do it with dudes who can appreciate it about, you know, shitty movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do it. I do. I do it anyway. So might as well do it with, with some, some buds and uh, have a couple laughs, you know? Certainly, uh, I would say that that's uh, a thing that, you know, the three of us all share a lot of uh, similarities and, you know, that's being in shitty bands and, you know, (laughs) playing shitty music. Also, we're uh, we're all three of us in varying degrees of uh, sobriety. We exist in a in a in a life of sobriety. I would say I'm the the least sober of the three of us, but still, uh, uh, you know, same thing. So my own predilections and like opinions and feelings about people that like, you know, uh, like drunks and shit like that. Like, I, I feel like we all share the same kind of sentiments about that. So, so just a uh, full disclosure for you fucking Alkies out there. Just turn this off right now. Cause this is not the show for you. All right. Either, is, that, uh, either that or because of the movies that we'll be discussing, it is the ultimate show for them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. So, yeah. So, when and we've all, all three of us, we've all played music together. So, you know, we've all known each other for years. John, I've known you. Shit. It's going on like 12 years now, I would say. At it's, least. It's been, a, it's been an excellent, excellent over a decade time knowing you, my friend. I always I, I've said this before, and you don't remember this story. I don't know how, but I say the first time I think I officially talked to you was that show in Chicago at Fuck Fuck Mountain, 
but you you don't have a wit of fucking recollection of that. Dude, what's funny is that I don't even remember that show that well. So it's like, you know, I'd hate to say the cliche, don't take it personally, but <laughs> I honestly, like, I kind of remember the staircase at that show. Like, I remember bringing gear up to that show, and I didn't Hatred Surge play? Yeah, it was Hatred Surge and Iron Long because they were the same band, essentially, right. for that tour. Was, was so it was, it, it was, was it, it was Nacho's... Hatred Surgeon Iron Lung at that at that venue. Yeah. Interesting. I was don't that remember ever it was a loft. Yeah, I re- I kind of remember the place, but I only remember playing with Hatred Surge one time. And it was it was not that show. So Is that in Chicago play- what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Bo- um both times that we're discussing are in Chicago, but I only remember playing with Hatred Surge at the Albion House, and that's it. Do you yeah. remember that place? It's called like Kedzie Street or Mackenzie Street. It was a warehouse upstairs, warehouse kind of. I spot. think you're thinking of Treasure Town. Yeah, that's okay. Treasure Town. Yeah, that place was fucked up. Yeah, yeah it was. I played Dude, there one I know, time. I know I got something sleeping on a mattress there. Dude, that <laughs> if if a building could do heroin, that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that building oh, is addicted shit. to fucking heroin. It's a downer. Oh, man. Total downer. Uh, but yeah, and so yeah, same with Brandon. I've known you for going on almost a decade here now too. So Yeah, it's been a long time. Actually, the first night I met you, it was a pretty good omen. You had a cool swan's back patch. Uh, so did mm. I. And uh, <laughs> you both had swan's back patch. The, yeah, the same, same one. Back patch. Same it was one. Kind of, it's a little bit prophetic if you think about it, because this movie <laughs> that we're about to talk about had a bit of a uh, a gang in it too, <laughs> a denim yeah. fucking clad gang. Anyway, and that same night we got our window broken out. And uh, speaking of swans, I had the consumer, um, my wife girlfriend at the time, but my wife Krista had bought me that. Michael Gerard book, The Consumer, was fucking wicked expensive. And it was the only thing in this backpack that was in her back seat. She just moved up, moved in with me in Seattle. And um, we went to meet Adam Capitol Hill because Krista knew him from, I don't know where she met. Transient must have played. I I booked Transient. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, going to meet this dude named Adam. Go up there. You know, have a good time, have some laughs, come back, and our car's smashed open. This backpack with nothing in it besides that book was stolen. And, uh, of course, you know, somebody's not going to be looking through this thing and go, oh, wow, this obscure book. Great. They I mean, you never, you never know. You never know what random incel might have broken into your van and loved the swans book i kind of i kind of hope so but more than likely they fucking blew their nose or you know wiped up the the fucking putrescence coming out of their abscess with it or something and then just chucked it so as a bit as a bit of a bummer but uh not to say that that you know omen cast any kind of bad light on our friendship they're one of the best best friends i've ever yeah, so it's been a it's been a good time so far, and I hope I fuck up your podcast. Yeah, 
Well, here's the fuck. I that somehow this episode results in us not being friends anymore. <laughs> oh, dude, that'd be so sick. I just, yeah, just like an implosion of like three dudes' relationships, like on air, and then I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna publish it, and then everybody's I'm gonna be like, man. I'm imagining you doing the next next episode and being like, "Welcome, I've got two new ones." <laughs> yeah, yeah, total yeah. recall. So let me just get a couple of confessions out right off the top, just All so right. I can throw any of my my movie credence right out the fucking window. Your credibility, yeah, my okay. my, my my cred, right? First of all, I have never seen the original Psycho. In fact, I don't think I've seen any of the psychos. Um, All right. Well, there's that's that, fucked there's, up. There's that remake with Vince Vaughn, and you know how I feel about Vince Vaughn. So yeah, you love him. Fucking right in the trash. Uh, I don't like Phantasm. Oh, fuck. All right. I mean, I'll watch going it. Going down the tubes. Uh, I'll it's watch it. tubes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, but I, don't, I, I wouldn't watch it, you know. To earnestly in, enjoy it, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre favorite movie. I, I think we can agree that that is well. I would I would argue that that is a perfectly shot film. It's I would a, say that there's it's, no it's waste. It's a phenomenal. Time. It's a phenomenal aspect of my life, and let me just say that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one thing we can, we definitely can all be in agreement that we all can state. For the record, 100% that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is all like all of our favorite, one of our favorite movies. It's one of the greatest, not just horror movies, but greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. I'll say this right away. The fact that I saw the original Psycho in film class in like sophomore year of high school and you for some reason haven't seen it now. I mean, I just don't care. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't really care. I mean that's that's actually kind of cool i i, I you, bet that you better get to karen buddy all right yeah. you better get to karen i know about your, i know hey. about ed gein i know about you know hitchcock hey. all right pipe down put your karen pants on we're gonna watch that movie the only, Fine. The only, yeah i'll watch it i'll accept the only way i'll accept that ed gein uh you know backpedal right there is is if in lieu of seeing the original Psycho, you just happened to be friends with the real Ed Gein while he was doing those murders. Like, I'll accept that as like some comeuppance for this. Yeah, totally. I was around yeah. in 54. <laughs> totally. Yeah, we're pals. He's right down the street from me. Now, That's awesome. Uh, so to, to, to kind of touch on that Texas Chainsaw uh, comment that I made, it being my, a perfect film, not just horror movie, but perfect film. I also enjoyed the newest Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is fucking just slammed on by everyone almost unanimously. I've got wait a second. You said newest. Are you, you're not talking about the one with Jessica Biel that came out like oh, 15 Oh, fuck no. Okay. I'm talking about that the uh, straight to – Netflix. I mean, I, I I I enjoyed the one that the one with Jessica Biel in it. I thought that was I thought that was pretty good. But. No, I didn't like that one. Um, but this newest one, that's just like straight to Netflix movie that got fucking trashed a couple of times, and then it it finally came out. I liked it. I wouldn't say I love it, but for being a contemporary horror movie, it it appealed to my sensibilities. A bunch of fucking lame-o 
dirt bags, uh, modern dirt bags, basically just fucking hipsters trying to come in and, uh, you know, make gentrify some, some right. little fart fart knocker fucking town yeah, in Texas. Um, you're right, a little fucking shit town, and they're completely despicable people. And they all get fucking murdered in the most horrific ways. I love it. You know, and people go, well, it doesn't have any substance. Now, the the final girl, Sally Hardesty, you know, she she gets fucking just thrown by the wayside. Unlike our final girl in the remake of Halloween, which I thought was a bunch of trash. I fucking hate that movie. That first, you know what I'm talking about? What did it come out? All right, 20, all right. 2018. As, yeah, okay. Well, as moderator, we're gonna we're gonna dial it back here, my my man. This isn't. We're not talking about that piece of shit movie. We'll get to it though. You can pick that yeah, movie. Yeah, and we yeah, can talk yeah, about yeah. It. All I'm saying but, is I'm I'm by and large I am a contrarian and not for contrarian's sake. I just I have a taste that a lot of people can't appreciate. So. Listen, motherfucker, you're at Club Walker right now. That's right. Club Walker is going to moderate. All, all, all of this will be revealed in due time. That's the whole point of this show. <laughs> Hang on one second. So, but just real quick, because we got to get into the movie here. We're already running a little long. But, like, you gave your confession, and you've kind of talked about some things you like more or less recently, Brandon. Go ahead, John. Give give a give a movie confession to the audience so we can get a litmus of like where you're coming from, and then maybe talk about something you've been watching lately that you you think you know deserves a fair shake. All right, that's fair. Um, my, I mean, I'm going to keep this very general. My confession is that I don't fucking know what I'm talking about like 90 percent of the time. That, that's my confession. Like I don't – I'm not going to pose. I'm not going to try to come off as some fucking guy that likes like, I don't know, fucking 1960s Italian horror flicks, whatever you're into, Adam. Um, <laughs> I have like very, very basic knowledge of the horror genre. Um, I like a lot of movies but it's one of those types of things where it's like I won't be an expert on anything but but my taste will be kind of all over the place. You know what I mean? Like there'll yeah. be like random shit that I've seen and that I like, but it's like you ask me who who else you know that director did a movie for, and I'll be like, "Fuck you!" I don't, you know. So that's my confession. Um, as far as what I'm watching recently that deserves a fair shake, I any time like the the Rocky series. You know, wherever it may end up, you know, it's going to be on a different streaming platform every six months, right? But every single time I rewatch all of them and sometimes multiple times. So right now that the Rocky series is back on Netflix, I am, uh, I've probably watched each one of them twice already in the last few weeks. Um, and that's just, uh, my, one of my passions is that, that series, you know, I'll always rewatch it and, study it and tell my wife how much it's awesome and she just ignores everything i'm saying you know <laughs> that's that's well, that's yeah well that's good because that brings me joy to hear both those things for uh these reasons number one that's why i'm glad you guys are coming on for this because you don't necessarily need to be a uh a uh scholar of italian giallo movies to be on this but <laughs> Maybe if you stick around, 
I'm going to introduce you to some of these movies and it might make you, you know, a little bit more uh, uh, well-versed in the genre itself. You don't necessarily, again, you don't need to be an academic about it. I, I certainly am not, but you know, I will say that maybe of the three of us, when it comes to stuff like that, maybe it, it I, I delve a little deeper. I'm just going to say that I think I, I dive a little deeper into that stuff. Now, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong on that, Brandon. I don't know how much you are, you're a fan of like Italian giallo or, or things like that, but that's just from my my guess. Uh, yeah, you know, I I might uh, I might be ivory to your ebony. You just never know. I might really specialize on stupid bullshit like the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's yet to be revealed. I know that well, you're, that's great. you're pretty versed in cinema. I mean, your background and you you work at one of the largest you work at the largest video store in I think America at least in the world. Um, I volunteer. World. Yeah. Just so you know, on the record, I volunteer because it's a nonprofit at this point. But oh, yes, right. I'm I'm there fairly often enough. I'm I, I know my way around the place. You know, but, but- yeah. I've seen a fair share of strange, obscure movies, and uh, I'm an appreciator of lots of stuff. I mean, that's we've talked about this time and time again. I will watch anything committed to film just because I'm fascinated with the fact that whoever made it, cast in it, whatever, had something to do with any kind of modicum of, of um, collaboration in any movie. I find it fascinating somebody thought – that this should be in the world. <laughs> sure. Sure. Amen. Amen. Um, and also to, uh, to finish uh, my commentary on what John said. Also, I am a huge fan of the, the Rocky mythos. So, you know, I appreciate that as well. Um, I haven't actually um, went back and revisited in, in quite some time. And I feel like I'm definitely due for a revisit. Um in that world because uh, especially the first two movies, they're, you know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they're just phenomenal American cinema, quintessential American cinema, in my opinion. Oh yeah. Number, number one, I mean, number one and two are both on the same, like, you know, close to the same level, but I mean, number one is like, I think I've mentioned this to you before, like when we were just like bullshitting, like not on an actual episode, but I mean that first movie straight up should never have happened, you know. It's 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 a phenomenon that it even exists, and uh, and not you know not to mention how utterly unbelievable it is in general. But it's just one of those like paradoxes where like 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 the fucking Big Bang Theory or something like not the TV show, the actual scientific <laughs> <laughs> the actual the actual scientific event of the big bang theory like is equivalent to like rocky 1 existing you know like yeah it, it truly is a it's a it's a it's a tale it's a what what do you say uh i'm i'm why am i having a brain fart here it's um uh, a guy that yeah was against all odds like made his vision happen it's the ultimate with, underdog story within underdog the story, thing, within yeah. the story and behind this you know, off camera as well. That yeah, that's what's so fascinating about it is that it's like the story literally like is parallel to the actual 
story behind the 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 man that made it or that wrote it you know like it's it's the underdog i mean it's it's i don't know we could go into that on my new podcast uh, the rocky series (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i'm i'm due for that too because i'm currently going through all of my vhs collection in alphabetical order so some of them I've been forced to watch out of order, which means I'm just going to watch them a second time. Um, but Rocky's coming up. I, I, I entertain the idea of watching them on a digital platform because I see them up there. But, yeah, well, <laughs> I have all of them and they're coming up on VHS. I'll just wait for it. It's coming soon. In my opinion, the preferred format. Yeah, indeed. Agreed. Okay. Well, that was a pretty long preamble, but again, we got two new guys, so I feel we're, you know, that's fair game to have a pretty long introduction and preamble before we get into the movie itself. Now, I wanted to backtrack a little bit uh, to dovetail into the movie uh, because, Brandon, you were talking about you and I's uh, uh, particular uh, interest in swans. I know that you like swans too, from what I gather a little bit, John, am I correct or not? It's, it's, eh. it's, uh, it's good. It, uh, it's not that, uh, I have no disrespect towards it, but I will say that I've had a tough time getting into it. It's one of those things where it's like, I can't seem to like get my groove. And as far as like finding and appreciating like a swans record, like I like it, but it's just, it's been a tough thing to like sink my teeth into and i think maybe because there's all the material out there um i mean it is it is truly like school shooter music you know (laughs) i would say getting your groove into it that that would be tough because there is no groove exactly yeah i kind of get the sense of that it's like it's it's not like no way it's not like listening to like you know bad brains or like even hate breed where you could just like pick it up and be like oh that was a good record it's like yeah, there is no groove to swans. But yeah, anyway, not to go into t- t- to that too much. Well, the the tie-in I'm trying to make is I hope that by watching tonight's movie and the villain in the tale being named Swan <laughs> will I help mean, you also, gain a further... reminded me of a, a, of a different character named Swan that is from one of my favorite movies. So, from the Warriors, that's yes, true, yes. you're right. So we have all these different little threads that we can tie together here that are completely random and make yeah. no sense. But anyways, so I've digressed enough. We've finally made it. We're going to talk about tonight's movie, which is Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, as I said at the top of the episode. This was fairly early in De Palma's career. It was two movies behind Carrie, which was essentially De Palma's big breakout, as far as a director goes. And De Palma is known for being kind of all over the place in terms of what his films are about, the subject matter. Stylistically, he's always kind of remained a little bit the same. Uh, De Palma is notable for having a lot of of notable nods and, and appreciation for Hitchcock. And there's definitely those elements in this movie. I would say uh, also De Palma is one of um, the most notable of this school of directors like Spielberg and George Lucas, this era uh, Coppola that shows the most 
homage to speaking of Italian filmmakers. There's a lot of like nods to Giallo and Italian film stylings in De Palma's work. Uh, this is like an outlier the most, I think, of all of his movies because it is a rock opera. And funny thing about this movie is I always thought this movie was like very, very similar in a lot of ways to Rocky Horror Picture Show enough to say that uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show was an influence on it. But this was actually made before Rocky Horror Picture Show. So it's an interesting little oddity of a movie uh, in a lot of different ways. Came out in 1974, stars William Finley, Paul Williams, and again, hearkening back to the Italian directors, Jessica Harper, who... Most people that are fans of this podcast or fans of horror movies in general will know her as being the heroine in Suspiria. This was Jessica Harper's first movie. So this is her breakout role. So uh, this movie, in a lot of those regards, is pretty important. Uh, This is your guys' first time seeing it, right? Yeah, first time. First time seeing it. Uh, how, how are you guys uh, on the meter? How do you feel about De Palma stuff? Are you familiar enough with De Palma's oeuvre to like have any comment on it? Or yeah, what's your opinion? Uh, I have a lot of a lot of his canon in my VHS collection, actually. Um, and you know, it's like you said, he's pretty prolific. He's kind of all over the the map. I mean. If you were to look and go, oh, yeah, Scarface, okay, body double, and then you've got Snake Eyes, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, right. it's this uh, this just leaping jump from one genre to the next. I, I appreciate that. And um, with that, yeah, this movie is a far leap from everything else uh, in his catalog, which... I mean, we'll get into it in the movie as we talk about it, but um, kind of it kind of shows that if the guy approaches a genre, he can do it real well. I mean, I know people who will say, you know, they they laud Scarface as this crime underworld movie, uh, Untouchables. You know, I, I don't know how you feel about that, but Body Double. It's another movie that. You know, people, they rave about, it's like, whatever he, he's a, he's a, he's a quick study for different genres, for whatever genre he seems to be going after. So when he's approaching a rock opera, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, I personally, I can't, I can't hang with musicals really. And I wouldn't call a rock opera necessarily musical. I wouldn't call this a musical in any regard. It's a movie about music and that's kind of the dividing line for me. But um, yeah, De Palma's uh, De Palma's one of the greats. And the other thing that I thought was interesting is Paul Williams, you know, you see him in all kinds of movies. I didn't realize that he was, you know, a, a songwriter. I mean, he wrote songs for all of these huge seventies rock bands which kind of the man behind the scenes. Anyway, I'm digressing and getting into stuff probably a little too soon. I'm sure we'll dive into. Well, what did you want to say, John? You were about to chime oh, yeah. in there. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, um, so 
just to clarify, so Brian De Palma, you're saying he directed Scarface and Carrie as, uh, as some of his other later films. Yeah, that is correct. Well, all right. Carrie, well, Carrie is more like his early to mid period. Scarface is later on. Yeah. Right. But it was after this movie, though. Um, well, after. Yes. Yes. So um, definitely seen both of those. You know, those are like big titles, obviously. But um, I mean, if we're compare, I mean, if I'm going to compare this to Carrie, I mean, they there's elements to this movie that are as creepy as Carrie, but definitely not in the same way. Um, but I definitely mm-hmm. think that like the, the man knows his grit, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's like always something that I can appreciate. I mean, I think that like when I'm watching a horror movie, I mean, there needs to be that grit. And that's the reason that I don't watch any horror movies basically after 1995, you know? Right. But like, uh, you know, like not having not known much about this director, I will say that, you know, just knowing the titles that I have seen, I mean, he's clearly, clearly one of the greats. There's no doubt about that. I don't even need to know much else, you know? Oh, um, yeah. yeah. yeah his, his, for work sure. for, his work speaks for itself. 74, yeah. you have Phantom of the Paradise. 76, you have Carrie. Uh, Blowout with John Travolta in 81, 83, he has Scarface, 84, body. Di- I mean, it, it's just like hit every couple of years. 87, The Untouchables, uh, Casualties of War. I don't know if you remember that one with Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn. Oh, yeah. Uh, 89, it's great. Carlito's Way, The First Mission Impossible. I mean, Snake Eyes, Mission no to Mars. It's just, oh, yeah. it's crazy. He's all over the fucking board. Yeah, he did Carlito's Way and the first Mission Impossible. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. He, you know, the he, as you can see, the grit is sort of disappearing as he gets later in his career. Sure, but that, I mean, that's, that is the epitome of a jack of all trades. It's just, for sure. Sure, I can pick this up. I can do this piece. I can do that you know what his inspiration to do these later films are i'm not sure mission to mars that's kind of a piece of shit but <laughs> but uh the guy knows the guy knows how to approach whatever he's approaching certainly a true auteur um so synopsis of the uh synopsis of this movie is Evil record tycoon Swan has sold his soul to the devil for eternal youth and success 20 years ago. His current scheme is to steal the music from composer Winslow Leach to celebrate the opening of his rock palace, The Paradise. While trying to stop Swan, Leach was framed and convicted for drug dealing, becomes the victim of a freak accident that leaves him horribly, horribly disfigured. He takes refuge in the cavernous paradise, hiding his mangled face beneath an eerie mask and planning gruesome vengeance upon Swan and everyone else who has heard him. However, Leach signs a contract with Swan to complete his rock opera based on the legend of Faust for an aspiring singer, Phoenix. So there you go. There's the synopsis of this movie. It's a, it's a lot of different concepts kind of thrown together into this mulligan stew of a movie. So you got aspects of Faust. You got aspects of the Phantom of the Opera. You got aspects of the Portrait of Dorian Gray, etc., etc. So, you know... De Palma was really trying to like thread a lot of different elements. Again, going back to talking about him being kind of an eclectic guy, you can see like even 
conceptually with what he was trying to do with this movie. He was really trying to weave a lot of things together, you know, hearkening also to previous rock operas like Tommy. So, you know, again, he's really kind of sewing things together to make this Frankenstein of a movie, which kind of I feel uh, is a little bit of a foreshadowing of things about the movie in itself. Um, The budget for this movie was over a million dollars. And I think this is funny when you look at IMDb, because obviously this is a typo, but it said the box office gross was three hundred twenty nine (laughs) dollars. So, whoa, daddy. Oh, if that was the case and that was a real fucking flopperoonie there. In the box office, but I think it was more wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) I don't think it made all of its money back, but I did read that it was a huge hit in Manitoba. So there you go. (laughs) Hey, hey, Manitobans love the paradise. Dang, fan of the paradise. They're all about it. Japan, big in Japan. Yeah, Yeah. big, uh, big Paul Williams fans up there. Um, as far as some critical reception goes, that I wanted to pull quote notable ones. Here's going to, uh, one half of our dastardly duo that we like to dunk on here on the podcast, uh, Siskel and Ebert got a real love hate relationship with these guys. Cause as much Same. as I do respect some of the things they said, and I grew up watching Siskel and Ebert between these two, it's hard telling which one had the stick further up their ass yeah. as far as like what they felt about movies. But this is what Gene Siskel had to say. He said he gave the film two stars out of four writing that, What's up on the screen is childish. It has meaning only because it points to something else. To put it another way, joking about the rock music scene is treacherous because the rock music scene itself is a joke. Get the fuck out of here, Dad. Pack your fucking bags. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna I'm gonna veer off for two seconds here and just say that Gene Siskel is the the lesser of the two evils. Um, he certainly is. And I have ever since I want to say maybe 20 years ago when I went back and reread uh, uh, Roger Ebert's review of the wizard. Yeah. (laughs) I've hated him ever since because (laughs) the wizard is one of my favorite movies of all time. And his review of that is absolute fucking trash. But anyway, let's continue. He's a real fucking like buzzkill. He's a real like killjoy. He also, he, also made, he also made an off-color joke about Ryan Dunn dying when, uh, you know, the jackass dude yeah. that, got, that got in the car wreck. He made, like, some really, really off-color tweet about that, like, a year before he passed away. And it's just like, good riddance, you fucking freak, you know? Well, he got his comeuppance. He, got, he fucking lost his jaw. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so him. He, he turned into, like, some sort of, like... Like Darth Vader without a helmet, fucking <laughs> freak of nature. So that's what you, you get for get. talking shit all those years, bro. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Amen. Uh, but that's your team, dude. Chicago guys. Your team Jesus all the way. Christ. What a wet blanket. Rock and roll <laughs> is dumb. Hey, what what is, what is Siskel think is a good movie? <clears throat> you well, know, like the opus. I I mean I don't. But you have to you have to admit sometimes those dudes surprise you when they do find something good where you're like, what shouldn't you shouldn't you have hated this? Right, you know? right. Which well, kind I of- mean they they loved Halloween. That's the thing. There was definitely some surprises that came from left field with some of the reviews. So. Right. I think I think they gave I think they gave Henry two thumbs up. Yeah. 
I know that's so wild because that's the thing with them was they were always so like prudish about every movie and about how they felt it portrayed women, especially horror movies. They were really into like digging into like horror movies being misogynistic and sexist. And well, I mean, I'm not going to deny that that's an aspect of it, but it's also, you know, it's it's storytelling and fantasy. So I'm going to just give a very, very quick, like alternate viewpoint on that. It is kind of impressive that like a mainstream group of film critics actually even had the courage to like call out misogyny. I mean, that's just not a popular thing to do, especially in like the nineties and the eighties. You know, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing, but the thing that I've commented before on this podcast is the way, uh, ebert would state it sometimes it was almost like a creepy uncle like this yeah. kind of weird cloying like i remember he said something about uh his in his uh review of fast times at ridgemont high and i remember this yeah and he was decrying the way that jennifer jennifer jason lee was portrayed in the movie and how it was like deflowering this innocent young child on screen and it's just like god put it's dude, yeah put it's like bump. it's like it's like dude okay i i think i think you you might have liked this a, mo- a little bit more than you're you're yeah, right a little too much calm down yeah. there beavis fucking pull the bone <laughs> pull the bone out of your sweatpants fucking waistband there and it, it makes geez. me wonder how he feels about that tom hanks movie big you know what i'm <laughs> you know what i'm talking about you know what i'm oh, talking yeah. about that when when the fucking Hank's girlfriend realizes that he's actually 13. She's been yeah. boning a fucking 13 year old, <laughs> you know? Right. Where are you on that one? Siskel. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Morality police. Hello. Okay. Well, I suck and they're both dead. So fuck yeah. Up. So fuck them. We'll piss on their grave on this podcast. That's what we're doing. This is this is officially the piss on Gene Siskel and Ebert fucking grave podcast. I mean, we're, we're clearly all three better film critics, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, well there we go. We got that out of the way. So without further ado, gentlemen, do you have anything else to comment before we get into the good, the bad, and the questionable? Uh, let's move on. We'll remember you forever. Through the sacrifice you made, we can't believe the price you paid for love. Little Eddie Mitty, born in Jersey City, started singing when he was five. Never knew his father and mother didn't bother. I'm going to kick it off because this is my movie. I, I picked it. And I think this kind of uh, uh, can jump off of what John was saying before that I'll edit out and he can put in now is I do like all of the different references and 
things that this is hearkening to to tie together for this story. Like you were saying, you you enjoy, you know, the fact that it, it's tying together Faust and and Phantom of the Opera, you know, and things like that, all into this this weird tale about, uh, you know, essentially uh, evil and exploitation. It's like it's taking these overarching grand concepts that like are pervasive in every culture. And all like since the beginning of time, this idea of this presence of evil incarnate, uh, taking advantage of the innocent and how that's represented, especially then in the 70s uh, in the music industry, you know, when like the rock music industry really started to become this megalith that it did in the 60s into the 70s and 80s. And where there was just like, there was just like, you know, ships, shiploads, city loads of fucking cash getting dumped onto people and how so many musicians and artists were exploited for the profit. Yeah, ruthlessly exploited for the profit of executives and the guys on top, you know, just like, again, just the the epitome of capitalism. I mean, just like, as far just as like as. literally humanity, like no longer exists. And it's like, it's like, <laughs> Hey, I'm going to literally use you for whatever I need right now. Right. And that continues to this day, obviously with streaming platforms, we've got Spotify, which just rakes in billions of dollars, you know, off of artists that get a fucking, penny every billion fucking listens <laughs> hey, yeah that's so. so that's that's pretty humiliating when you get this chi- oh you got royalties from spotify three dollars and seventy cents try like 30 cents yeah yeah it's like man just don't even show me this shit please. seriously yeah i would i would return right. the it's, check i'd yeah, be like right take it yeah, just sign on the dotted line so, there. Yeah. We own your ass. <laughs> so, but again, this is, again, a tale as old as time here where, you know, the poor schmuck fucking bleeding heart musician artist is just trying to get his, his vision to the world, you know, and also through his vision find love in, in the case of Winslow Leach and, and Phoenix. And it just gets thwarted mercilessly by the record exec swan. So again, we have like, again, these time honored stories that have been, you know, portrayed in other tales, given this at the time, contemporary facelift, no pun intended there, uh, (laughs) with this, with this movie in particular. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'd add to that, that. It's also funny to me that I see as a reference to, to real life in the music industry, when somebody, uh, you know, in this case, uh, the record company, they glom onto a sound and, and they just totally ruthlessly take it over, but then they try and synthesize it without the actual heart behind it. Like they do in this movie, they try and find someone to play, you know, play the songs. They're doing all these tryouts to 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 find the Winslow Leach out there, but that's not him because they've already fucking dunked on him. Um, I think uh, right. the thing that's that spoke to me the most too is that like 
in the beginning they're showing him just playing his song you know yeah. and it, you truly like the way that they wrote and shot this and like portrayed this is like he's l- completely lost in his own music you know like he's like like you can tell that he doesn't even know that he's there playing that song he's just so into it and like pouring his heart out but like not for anybody but himself it's it's, you know it's genuine he's he's dancing when no one's looking you hear them like or you see them like picking up on this and it's like you get the dichotomy of like this guy doing something genuine and like literally lost. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you see their perceptiveness of like, Oh, I'm, I'm listening and looking for something to steal. Right. Meanwhile, this guy that they're stealing from like literally doesn't even really know the world is going on around him while he's playing this song. Which I, I, yeah. Which is brilliantly done. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's a pretty timeless thing in the, in the music industry. I mean, look at a lot of the black blues music, you know, from the thirties and forties, these guys are putting these songs out. They're just incredible. They can't, they can't be replicated by any white band out there. And some record company comes along goes, Hey man, you want to, you know, I'll cut you this record and, and just sign this and, wouldn't you know it? We own your ass. And that, that is now, you know, a, a legendary song that goes on through, through, through the decades, people buying the song from the record label and, and who did it? I mean, Skip James was rediscovered in the sixties. No one knew who the fuck he was. It's like the same type of thing. This the, Winslow Leach is this guy who's just, He's smiling. He's dancing when no one's looking. He's not doing it for anyone else. Yep. It's just it just comes out of him. True innocence. Yeah, for sure. And it's in, it's in a movie like in, from a film standpoint, it's important for it's important to establish innocence and evil like very early on, and and, and if it's done in a way that is like as brilliant as this, I mean that really really makes the movie. Yeah, it sets opinion. the foundation for something that even if it gets silly or kind of kind of far afield, I, I'll go along with it because the foundation is strong enough. What you what you just said, it will come up later, yeah. by the way, just letting <laughs> yeah, you know. Definitely. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I have some things to say a little later, that, that'll come up. So just, yeah. Well, I want to keep the thread going uh, with speaking particularly about William Finley, who was the actor that played <laughs> Winslow Leach. I love William Finley. I feel like he's a forgotten weirdo of yore, and he kind of was just one of De Palma's dudes. He really wasn't in anything else except for De Palma movies, mm-hmm. and I think he plays Winslow Leach slash the Phantom with a plum. He just like because he looks like kind of like this like cartoon character. Yeah. He's got those bug eyes and he's like gangly and like he's got a you very, know, he, he, kind of like zany, like almost nutty professor ish like quality to him. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. So I really love the the casting, uh, particularly of William Finley in this. I like the casting in general in this movie. I think like it's all pretty spot on. Um, but I would say as far as the actors doing their job 
William Finley to me is kind of the one that's knocking it out of the park the most totally. in this movie. I yeah. definitely picked so. up on that. Like as far as performance goes, like you could throw that role into another movie and it would be it would do just fine, you know. I think. Right. So I said a couple things there. Uh, I was going to hand it off maybe to you, John. Uh, give me some of your goods. Um, well, I, you know, I will say like, I'm a huge fan of the original Phantom of the Opera. You know, I like, I've been a fan of this since I, I read like a, like a children's version of this, of the novel as a kid and like explored it as I got older, saw it on Broadway, saw like some of the few movies, which actually weren't very good. Um, but (laughs) Yeah, I'm a huge fan of this story. I love it. I, I, I've i researched it. I love everything about it. Um, but so, you know, you 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 know early on watching this that it it's obviously like a, a, a parody of Phantom of the Opera as well as other things too, like Faust and all that. But my fa- like my favorite thing about this movie personally was all of the references to the actual Phantom of the Opera story that – if you don't know the Phantom of the Opera story, you you wouldn't know these references, you know. Sure. Um, but you know, like some of the ones that I picked up are like like beef being threatened in the shower, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean that that is obviously like a psycho homage, but it's more it's more of a Phantom of the Opera homage because of there's in the original story Fan, Phantom of the Opera threatening Carlotta. Who is basically like yeah. the girl who steals Christine's part, you know? And uh, you know, Phoenix is obviously Christine. Um, I don't know if anybody else picks up on this, but essentially Swan is also Raul at 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 yeah. a point in the movie, um, you know, stealing his girl. And when he looks on and like sees that they're like together and like sleeping together or whatever, like that directly parallels the the Phantom of the Opera because there is literally a scene where he observes them walking off and is like heartbroken from it. So I loved all of these references. That was like my favorite part of the movie. Um, you do. You, you love your incel references, don't you? Yeah. Anything incel. <laughs> any, any, anything that, that, that speaks back to somebody feeling like he's owed uh, a relationship with a woman, you know, speaks to me directly. So. <laughs> no, I'm glad that you were able to bring in those uh, bits about Phantom of the Opera because I also love that tale uh, as well. And yeah, there's a lot of distinct nods to the story. In the, that are almost like lifted directly well, from yeah, the story and, itself. And you know what? Like done well in a way where it's like impressive because like not all parodies are successful with that, you know? Sure. So when I, when I think about this being a parody, like we'll, we'll get to the silliness of it because I have my own opinions on that. But like these yeah. these references were done very well in my opinion. Brandon? Uh, well – Right off the top, because it's the, one of the first things we see. I love that the band is called the Juicy Fruits. <laughs> I just, I, that was an immediate laugh right off the bat. I like all of the names of the characters. I think they just fit the character as far as when you think about establishing good and evil. Winslow Leach, you know, the, the right. lovable, innocent doofus that just gets... Uh, totally swept under the rug by a, you know, uh, idolized or, or a megalomaniac, essentially swan, 
like this grandstanding yeah. glamorized fucking doofus. Uh, I, he's got a lackey named Philbin. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, uh, I just love it. I love it. I was going to, I was going to ask you guys like, well, not ask. First of all, I want to say that the, the uh, adding on to what you said, Brandon, like the juicy fruits, backup singers and dancers. Like <laughs> I was just like losing it during yeah. that first scene. Yeah. It um, was, it, that was a laugh riot over here at our house. <laughs> but my question for you guys, like I didn't fully understand this, like in that first scene where the juicy fruits are playing, um, are, the part where they kind of like attack the audience members, like, oh, yeah. is that like, is that staged or is that something like almost like a, like an unexpected, like Gigi Allen sort of occurrence? I don't know. I kind of got like a Beatlemania kind of vibe off of it. Like yeah. fighting off the audience, but. I don't know. Adam, you, yeah, Adam, you that's probably I, like clear this up because I was a little confused by that. Like when they they at one point one of the backup dancers or singers like goes into the audience is like and like grabs like a woman out of their chair or something, and like the, a few people like yeah. scatter off. Like I was like, that's not really normal for like a performance, or is like <laughs> are they filming a music video or what? Yeah, I think that's what it was. It was just more just kind of like a spur of the moment kind of, you know, rock and roll unhinged kind of energy sort of thing, I suppose. Gotcha. So, and to to tie into, you know, that first scene and all of the scenes where the bands are playing, the performances are awesome. I mean, a lot of times you watch these movies and whether they're actually playing or not is questionable. Um, It's up for debate, but, it it looks pretty spot on. It looks pretty authentic. All of the band gear, I love watching these old movies. Like even watching Back to the Future or something, I'll p- pause it when they get to the, you know, the scene where Marty is playing and the and and I just pause and look at all the the gear they're playing on. Man, they had <laughs> some top of the line for the time retro seventies gear in this movie. Super cool. Um, Marvin Berry and the Starlighters. Yeah, <laughs> I <laughs> I really like the scene. Um, I like the scene where I, I don't know if you guys remember, but it's a split screen scene, and it's when the bomb is getting put. You know, Winslow Leach is kind of setting up, yep. sabotaging the set. I thought that was a little ahead yeah. of its time because that is a true real time scene. You're seeing. On one side of the screen, the car, and it's getting pushed, you know, around the stage set. And then the other screen on the right side is kind of a bird's eye view. And you see all the performance and the actors and everything in both. Everything in both split screens is happening in real time to each other. I thought that was really cool. Um, And actually, of movies of its time, I don't think I can recall anything that was trying to utilize real time shots like that. Pretty cool uh, shot all on its own. That, that specific scene in itself is another reference to the original Phantom of the Opera that I really appreciated too, because the, the scene in the Phantom of the Opera where he drops the chandelier on the crowd and literally literally kills people at the event. Right. Is so brutal. And like, yeah, so fucking violent. 
you know, and like I loved that there there was that like kind of parallel in this movie too. Yeah, and, and well, the, well, just real quick, the last thing I really wanted to mention in my goods, which I mentioned earlier, but just kind of elaborate that it is it isn't a musical; it's a rock opera, but it's just a movie that focuses around music, and I appreciate that. You know, um, I like that much much more than than these kind of films where everyone in the crowd knows the words and everything goes into this you know musical bit and then digresses away from the story unless you're following along through the the verses and such. So that was cool. I appreciated that. Yeah, I wanted to talk more about the 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 split screen that was in my good as well because that is a quintessential De Palma mechanism right there. If you look at a lot, he does it in Carrie, he does it in Sisters. It's a thing that he utilizes quite often that it becomes a signature De Palma kind of maneuver, and he actually got that from from Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock used that a lot, but De Palma is the one that I really feel like made it his thing. Right. So, and I, and I do, yeah, I like that a lot as it's showing you different perspectives in in real time together happening. Um, it's a really cool uh, dynamic to add into a film. Uh, yeah, uh, they, yeah. I, I like I said, I I picked up on that. I picked up on the fact that it was split screen that it was real time is really cool. And now that I think about it, totally. He totally does that in Carrie. I mean, in that whole prom yeah. scene, you see him setting the bucket up and all of that. Yep. Yeah, that is a um, there's a motif of De Palma's. Yep, it certainly is. Um, the set design in this is phenomenal, particularly that sanctuary well there's a couple different like sanctuaries in the paradise that i'd really love a lot i love uh swan's just sanctuary of hair like his harem of writhing groupies and and (laughs) chorus ladies that he has that he just is like creepy peeping on all the time they're like oh yeah we gotta do this for him he's always watching he's watching us always watching He's always watching us. And is it is it just my <laughs> kind of diseased recollection, or does does he have a series like a myriad of round beds? He's got to think about round <laughs> yes. beds. It was very very cool at the time. A, a lazy Susan of fucking <laughs> basically. He's, he's the original basically. Austin Powers, really. He's <laughs> the original aging hipster, exactly. <laughs> He, kind of, he 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 really is in a lot of ways. That's the thing with with Swan in this movie. He he is like a uh, he's an archetypal hipster in a lot of ways. And, and I, um, I think that John got it though because the first time you see him and the first scene you just see his glove and you you know the kind of the kind of making suggestions that this guy is you know this big deal and then when you see him <laughs> in his hair and his glasses he's just repulsive to me you know and well, he's just like a little he's like a little man yeah he's that's again that's what i think that paul williams was cast perfectly because he's a small diminutive man sure. that is representing somebody that has this huge ego and and too much power 
Um, and you know, and he's like a dandy. That's the whole thing. That's like that's the Dorian Gray references. He's like this dandy fop hipster guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that plays <laughs> into that whole. I have power, so I'm gonna get laid. I'm gonna get fame, no matter if I'm just like a complete dirtbag and just mm. uh, a horror to look at. <laughs> Which don't don't they say that he's like the the tenth richest person in the world or something? Or is that? Yeah, I think so. Is that something else? No, I think that that sounds about right. I mean, obviously, that's another thing that's funny about this movie is the hyperbolizing of the power and influence of the record executive of the time. It's like he has his he has such a far reach. He actually has, uh, you know, influence in the prison system. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Death <laughs> records. <laughs> that, that was something. What's the what's the what's the prison called again? It's in San Quentin or something, uh, isn't it? Isn't it a just a a known prison? Yeah, I thought so. I think it, was, it had like a silly name, like the Slim Slim or something. Like I, oh, Sing Sing, it's it Sing Sing. No, Sing Sing. Yeah, Sing Sing's an Sing actual Sing's prison. A legit so. prison. Yeah, I was I yeah. was uh, none the wiser to that. I, I didn't. Yeah, Sing Sing. Yeah, Sing Sing's a real prison. Uh, it's one of those like old school kind of like uh, Rikers, where it's it's just you know it's it's just a torture chamber essentially. So gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one more thing that I wanted to mention is that uh, it's funny because I I had to look this up, but um, Paul Williams, who plays Swan, he is actually a musician. You know, he's actually a composer. Yeah. I think he sold songs to like the Carpenters and the Doobie Brothers and stuff. But he did a lot mm -hmm. of the songs. He did most of the music in this movie. And that song that he does when uh, when Leach rewrites his cantata, it's called Somebody or uh, excuse me, it's called um, Phantom's Theme. I yeah. love that song. The lyrics. The composition, where where it goes musically. Uh, after the movie, I had to download download this album because it's it's so good. The lyrics are it's got some bangers yeah, on the it. The lyrics are just great. It's, uh, the, the music in this movie is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's cool. It's yeah, it's great soundtrack. It's, it's cool. I always like that kind of thing where you find out that you know the actor actually played his parts or something. But in this case, Paul Williams did all of the parts that um, Winslow Leach's character. What, what's his, what's his name? William Finney. Yeah. William yeah. Finney. He sung all of, all of the phantoms parts. Um, and, and to speak further to your point earlier, like this is not a musical, but rather like, a movie that has musical performances in it. Yeah. A lot. You know, yeah, and that, a lot of that, that is not an easy thing to pull off without falling into the pitfall of being a musical, in my opinion. Agreed. Um, right. Uh, there was one other thing I want to say about the set design, but also as far as the weird little inner sanctuaries and chambers, but also uh, the Phantoms uh, chamber itself, which itself is a real life just giant analog synth that moog synth yeah that moog <laughs> setup i i read yeah. this too that that is a that is a working it's like a modular synth yeah. there's a real modular synth that it, that exists in 
Canada now. They moved it, but yeah. That thing is wild. Yeah, and if it was made at the time, I mean, how valuable Moog shit is now. If you go to a a, yeah. a music store, a used music store, I mean, that, that has got to be a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of gear. Just a complete sphere of, of analog synth shit. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, John, anything else you got? Oh, as far as the good? Yeah. Um, I mean, I laughed out loud at, at the line, get this fag out of here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I actually had that in my bad questionable just because. <laughs> but – it's also hilarious I mean, I'll, to me. I'll go ahead and just dispute that ahead of time. It's in, it's in the it's in the good category. Yeah, I I, I second that emotion. It's uh... it's just it's just like like it's coming from the main char- like the main villain of the movie, you know, and it's like one of the first things that you really hear him say. Yeah, and it's it, it's totally despicable to modern sensibilities, but at the time, uh, looking back, you go. That is what somebody in a record exec, you know, position would would do or say. Exactly. And it's also like Certainly. it's also Certainly. something that like no one would have batted an eyelash at being offensive at that time. Completely. Yeah. You know. The the main thing that I the point that and I'm stepping on my own dick here by because I had it further into the into the category or into the 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 summary of the movie is I have like a lot of I I had like I guess uh um mixed emotions because I'm like oh well this is the guy that wrote the Rainbow Connection for the Muppets movie and <laughs> <laughs> and we've only just begun it's like one of the you know the greatest like uh greatest love songs of all time and here he is saying get this fag yeah out of but here. <laughs> I mean you you could argue that with Carlin playing Thomas the Tank Engine. Totally. No, no, no. no I, obviously, I can reconcile them, but it, it is funny to me to think about, like, yes, these people that had, you know, because everybody's complex, obviously. That's the whole, you know, that's the nature of, of people is, you know, you can <laughs> you can be somebody that can write children's music and write this lovely, you know, lilting music and also be a guy that probably says, like, maybe in your day to day life. Hey, fag, get the fuck out of here, you yeah, fag. But maybe he doesn't. And maybe it just shows his brilliance no. about how he knows how to adapt a type of character. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. Before, totally. before we move on from this, I have one last thing that is a good for me, but I'm, I, I want to know if I'm off base about this. Um, okay. Adam, did this movie come out before or after The Godfather? Uh, this came out right after the Godfather. Uh, okay, actually, i when uh, what's the what's the like the executive like the like the lackey's name? Philbin. 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 When Philbin, <laughs> yeah. when Philbin, and it's like the first scene in the movie after the main like opening. You know, he's talking about right. Annette and how like yes. they lost Annette to like they basically like stole him stole her away. You know, like she was going to be right. like one of their big stars and then she basically got exploited or whatever. Right. Yeah. I, I found that to be a reference of like the story of Johnny Fontaine with Waltz in The Godfather. 
Yeah. Um, where he's talking to Tom Hagen about how he had like a protege, but he was also like sleeping with her and like she was like the love of his life. But Johnny Fontaine yeah. comes along with his guinea looks and good charm and <laughs> takes her away, you know? I, I yeah. immediately thought that that was like a reference to that, like when I heard that. So I wasn't sure if you guys picked up on that. I I would almost certainly agree. I didn't pick up on it. It's funny because Charlotte uh, had never seen The Godfather. And so we had a couple nights where I'm just like, all right, sit down. You got to watch the first and second Godfather at least. Yep. So like, you know, we we actually just recently watched it. And yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that because it, it didn't click in my brain, but I could totally see that. Because, you know, De Palma and Coppola and, and Spielberg, like I said, they were all buds. They were all, they were considered like the bete noir of directors of the time. They were, they were the up and coming, like, you know, the fucking New Jack guys. So they all palled around, and I'm sure that they were definitely making their own references to each other's movies at the time. Well, I'll throw that in. So that I'll sense. throw that in as one final good for me, because I, I love references and that, that, I, I picked that up. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I have a few more, and then I'll hand it off to you, Brandon, and then we'll go into the bad and the questionable, which are going to be a little bit more uh, compact. Yeah, take it. Uh, my, my, gonna, I, I put my good in, so it's all you. Well, for me, a big good. I feel like this movie, to me, as much as I like the whole movie, absolutely takes off with the introduction of Beef. Beef is like next to Winslow, my second favorite character. And that whole uh, audition cycle they have of the different styles of music yeah. for Swan to figure out what's the new yeah. sound and he lands on Beef <laughs> is so rad to me because, like, obviously, Beef is the least musically qualified of all of them, but he's just a fucking outrageous character. So that's where Swan's like, and that's again, this reference to kind of like execs being kind of boneheads and not really seeing the forest or the trees. They're just kind of like, you know, cause they're so like megalomaniacal and they think that they know what's what everybody wants and what they think is cool. It's like, yeah, beef's great. He's hilarious, but he's also he's like, a, he's a fucking bonehead. He's a beef. It goes back to what I was saying about the names just really spelling out the people. Beef is his yeah. fucking name. <laughs> Absolutely. We've got Beef. we got Leech. we got Swan. we got Phoenix. They all have some sort of animalistic right. reference to yeah. them, and, and it, which yeah, is I mean, like they, Him going with Beef, like it, it, it does speak to like, like whatever is just easily – categorized and digestible to the public like or just, just what's also just what's the most over the top i guess what's gonna what's gonna be the most like easy to exploit right. here but it's still you know? it's still in a sense watered down you know like it's 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 still like you as over the top as it is it's still like you don't have to put much thought into it. Yeah. You know, well, that's, it's, that's it's, what right. I meant. That's what I meant. If you were, weren't watching this, if you were reading the screenplay or a book and you just had the names to go off of, you could figure out what types of characters these were, you know, being portrayed. Who's the antagonist? Who's, you know, who's the heroine here just from the names alone. Yeah. And I think that's genius. That's 
totally intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that whole part, like from that, it's, it's definitely the mid to like third act. I would say of this movie is when beef gets introduced and beef's going to be the star and beef is the one that's going to overshadow Phoenix. We haven't really gotten to talk about Jessica Harper. I love Jessica Harper, but the thing is with her is like, I feel like her role in this is, you know, she's kind of whatever, honestly. Yeah, like I, 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 I think it's good to have her because she plays that kind of like innocent, you know, neophyte, uh, kind of virginal type of individual get, that gets corrupted. That's great. But I kind of want to gloss over her to talk about like more about like beef. <laughs> Cause I think Garrett Graham does a fantastic job of playing beef. That concert where it's like beef and the undead when the juicy fruits have been like rebranded as the glam fucking shock rock band, that whole, that whole part of the movie just, I love it so much. It's like, I think I've talked to you about this before, Brandon. I've talked about it on the show before. I don't know how much I've talked to you about it, John, but one of my favorite bands of all time was this band called the tubes. And you will know the tubes. If you don't know who I'm talking about, you will know the tubes as being kind of a one hit wonder. They had that song in the eighties called she's a beauty. You know what I'm talking about? She's a beauty. She's one in a million girl. Anyways, (laughs) they're known for that. But they're one of these bands. I love bands like this that like they might have achieved some sort of notoriety um, and had a hit, but they had this whole just entire lifetime before that as being a completely different band. Yep. And the tubes were this really over the top, super theatrical kind of glam rock, punk rock band, proto punk rock band. And they're singer whose name is fee Waybill, he's got this crazy weird name <laughs> who's this like seven foot tall fucking weirdo and one of their songs he would come out dressed up as another character called quay lewd which was like his portrayal of of like glam rock it was his parody of glam rockers and he'd come out he's already this giant man and he would come out on like these giant like fucking eight foot heel eight inch heel fucking boots anyways that whole scene reminds me of something that like the tubes would have done. And I just like how they go into the audience and they mock cut up the audience and fucking ravage the audience and throw, throw their bodies into the air. And I just love that. And then of course, you know, it ends with beef getting fucking roasted. He got beefed. He got beefed. We, we, uh, we boiled the beef there when, uh, the phantom threw the, uh, the, the lightning bolt, the the neon lightning bolt into his back and (laughs) and that's what of course moves the story into putting phoenix into the the role of finally being like the starlet that that winslow wanted but obviously because swan's at the helm of it it gets turned against him again and you know phoenix gets defiled essentially by the devil himself further causing uh winslow lee uh more pain and anguish he gets he gets fucking uh he gets uh uh ripped off again essentially swan gets one over him on him again go figure but anyways i just love that whole scene 
Um, and then I love the whole ending scene during the wedding ceremony because basically those parts to me show how much fun this movie probably was to make and how you can just tell that everybody involved were like just partying the whole time, just having a complete blast making this like unhinged over the top, really like spectacle of a movie. It almost, almost, when it gets into that territory, not the entire consistency of the film but when it gets into like the, the end scene and all that it almost reminded me of like a john waters movie or something Absolutely. yeah the, the, right. the absurdist quality really yep. peaks right there in the end well, and just yeah be, being this assemblage of genuine weirdos yep you know coming together to make this happen so i just had to say that i wanted to definitely get that out of the way that you know beef Beef is beef and, and the whole beef concert. One of my favorite things about this movie. So, all right. So is that all you guys got for the I, good? Yeah, I think that, I think we can move on. Yep. Cool. All right. I'm trying, trying to make it snappy here. Uh, the bad. What do you guys got for the bad? Well, uh, yeah, this will be brief. I really don't have, I enjoyed this movie right f- from jump. There's really nothing that I didn't like. Because of the movie. The only thing that I would say about bad, I've really only formulated in this discussion, and that's Phoenix's character. She she goes from just being like this meek, innocent person that Winslow kind of props up, and then she's uh, just so malleable, you know? Um, nothing wrong with the character. She portrays that fine. It just it sticks me kind of because I know people like that and I fucking hate that. Right. But but that's completely aside and aside from the film. In fact, that actually yeah. leans more into the good because it can take me back to of a, a feeling in real life that oh god I fucking hate that. You know because they play <laughs> that character so well. So. Yeah, really, I have no bad to report. What about you, John? So, this is where this is the the main thing that that I can't I can't shake, and this is gonna probably not register with either of you, and it's also gonna make me look like a fucking conceited. <laughs> uh, Lay it down, Daddy. You know, you know like pretentious non-film critic but film critic prick but um i we're obviously like one of the the jokes about this podcast is that we're like talking about movies that are kind of bad right sure um well yeah yeah i mean yeah or not but you know like that's definitely welcome to like make fun of shit your midnight flicks siskel it sounds like is what you're i mean (laughs) i'm very likely about to turn into him right now so i I, I will say this sorry let me just interject real quick yes we're talking about movies that maybe there's certain sort of coherency issues and if you held them up to like rigorous critical sort of study Yes, there's going to be cracks in them that are shown. All for right, sure. so I'm going to try to keep this concise so it doesn't take forever to say. And I'm actually, I figured, okay. I just figured out a way to say it in like a way that you might see my point. This movie okay. is like so brilliant and like 
excellent in terms of like creativity that it it is deserving of being made better. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I feel like again, this was an early De Palma effort, and clearly he was trying to be very ambitious with it. Right. So I I feel like yes, and that's the thing like. With making movies, especially once they start getting into these higher echelons of production, there's so many moving parts and there's so many hoops you have to go through to make it happen that it's like miraculous that most of the time they even come together. And a lot of times they don't. So, yeah. But that's so that's kind of my point is that like sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And I don't think that that works with this. And the reason why okay. is because like there's so many examples of like low budget movies that like very easily could have fallen apart and like the people had like nothing to work with, but they but it still works and they still made something like phenomenal with it. And I think that yeah. there's like a dichotomy of like essentially like sort of in a way like how well this movie is made, but like on paper how poorly this movie is made. It's like, yeah. it's so much, it, it, I don't think it works because of like the, like I said, it's, it's a, it's brilliant. The way that it, the, the way that the story is and the way that the, the music's worked in and like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's something that just doesn't connect with me for this very reason. Um, it's like, it's like this movie It almost like like they needed to like not be as as creative or smart with it. I don't know. That's can you make this, can you make no, this I, more stupid, please? <laughs> like what I'm saying? No, 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 no. I I know what you're saying. Like again, you're you know again, as I stated, it was a very ambitious project, and they didn't quite tie it all together that's what i was trying to say before about it being this kind of frankenstein mm-hmm. of disparate elements that kind of get sewn together in a way that are operational but they're not fully meshing right in a way where it could be a perfect a more perfect example of what they're trying exactly. to do I, I i don't i don't agree and with in you. that sense it's like almost sort of unfair of me being that critical of it but you know by all means like it's what 60 years later or something like 55 55 years later you know years later you know we're talking about a piece of cinematic history um yeah that that's like my criticism of it It, yeah it's it's kind of like de palma and whoever his cohorts were just rolled some dice okay how many pieces how many elements and homages can we take out of all of these things and try and string together that's hard to do right. in, in the time of a feature-length film you know I, I i guess i can see what you're saying that just i was i i, I was kind of overcome by the spectacle of everything i wasn't really diving that deep but i can see it i can sure. see it there there is as much as there is a lot of complexity to what was going into the movie there's also, uh, you know, contradictorily, uh, not a lot of depth to it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely some writing issues that could have been spruced up. That brings to my bad. I, 
I didn't notice it as much as last time that I watched it, but I always felt like that first part leading up to when Winslow officially assumes the role of the Phantom feels a little rushed. Oh, I felt like they were trying to cram a lot yeah. into that real, real fast. Yeah, you know but I mean? to me, that I don't know. That is like an age-old story. Someone getting just fucking thrown under the bus by the corporation, the man. I, I felt like that mm-hmm. was kind of, let's have some brevity here because it's a story you know well. You know, I thought I, yeah. I thought that that was it was absurd how <laughs> I I liked it a lot how absurdly um, severe his punishment is. You know, I mean, <laughs> sure. it goes from okay, not only did you get your your whole career and song stolen and by contract, but then you go to this prison and get all of your <laughs> teeth torn out. You know, I mean, just thing after thing after thing happens to him. And uh, that's in the first, what, 35 minutes of the movie? Maybe even less? Yeah. Is it against against the rules to go back to another good, even though we're talking about the bad? Because I just thought of, like... No, no. I mean, your, your point, like, you mentioning Brandon, like, his punishment and all that. Yeah. Like, one of the things I loved was... The idea of him getting his own music pressed into his face, <laughs> like, like if that doesn't if that doesn't brilliantly show the 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 tragedy of getting screwed by big business, <laughs> yeah. like I don't know what does, you know? Yeah, because you know that that yeah. stamp had his song name on it, and then Swan. Pow! Right in his own face, <laughs> literally. Like, like, imagine, imagine you're like. Getting your the grooves of your vinyl Stamped. that were stolen by a record company pressed into your skin. Yeah, like I mean that I that is truly creative and like amazing. So I don't know. I'm sorry to go back to a good, but that yeah, unbelievable. No, that's great. I'm glad you pointed that out because that really is uh, <laughs> uh, it's a harsh toe <laughs> for sure. Yes. <laughs> um. So. This is just like a technical thing, and I realize this was them having to do something in post in order to completely save their ass. But and we'll talk about this with within the wiki wormhole as to why this was done. But you will see throughout the movie the Death Records logo being very obviously optic optically matted on things, mm-hmm. um, and there was a reason why that had to be done. But it's very, it's very, very conspicuous, and uh, it just kind of is unnerving at times when you see that. Just <laughs> you watch like, like I've been going back and rewatching Seinfeld all over again, which I periodically do, and you see this a lot in Seinfeld where they go to a certain restaurant, and it's clearly not the restaurant that they're saying they're going to, like Mendy's, but it's a, you show the sort the storefront and it's like optically matted Mendy's over like, you know, a Panera bread yep, or whatever. Yep, I know exactly. I mean, I'm a, a huge Seinfeld fan, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's all over in this. And then the other thing I want to say was, again, I hate to diss on my girl, Jessica Harper, but man, some of the moves she's got in this movie are pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, I'll second that. 
Uh, having, <laughs> All right, really yeah. other, having not no real prior knowledge of Jessica Harper. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, she'll come up again. I'm certain. I'm certain later on in the podcast. Uh, but this one, this this isn't a good introduction to to Jer- uh, Jessica Harper's uh, chops. I yeah. feel like. Yeah, so. she's she's definitely overshadowed by the other uh, big performances in the movie. Um, now, yeah. are you ready to move on to questionable? Because I do have a bad, but it borders unquestionable because it legitimately is a question. Okay. Um, well, yeah, then that's yeah. questionable. That's what questionable is all about. I have about. one last is, bad, okay. and that is like, it's okay. similar to it's similar to when you said like that was rushed with. Uh, you know him becoming the Phantom or whatever. Mm-hmm. When when you when you learn about like Swan being under contract to, you know all that and like not like what he's not able to be or is it him or um, Leech that's not able to be? No, Swan can't be stabbed. Right, yeah, right. He can't be stabbed. He made a pact with the devil. Won't age. I I'll be honest. Well, it's both of them. What's that? Yeah, but I'll be honest. Like it took me a, a a bit to like rewind and like kind of follow that plot. Like I I I got, sure. I got a bit lost there, and that's not to say that it can't be followed like by somebody that's a little bit more quick witted than I am. But <laughs> but I will say that like I've I've I did not enjoy like not knowing what the fuck was going on for like Wait, at least what the one of those moments yeah i was just like like 10 minutes later i was still like do i need to rewind and, and i ended up doing that i ended up <laughs> rewinding it and going back to try to figure out what the fuck that was about you know so sure. i, I, consider, and, and I, I like- consider that a bad personally yeah, I think that goes again with the writing, uh, the script writing, where it's like, did you really need to have to make this that complex? Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, just you could have you could have somehow edited that a little bit more to make it a little bit uh, easier to grasp. Just, you know, just say, hey, yeah, Swan's immortal. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And there's only one way to kill him. And that's what Leech has got to right. figure out. Right. Whatever. Yeah, so, I agree. Um, questions. Go ahead. What, what questions yeah, you got there? Yeah, let me kick buddy? it off because this could just be in my bad, but it could have just been a fuck up. Now, I, I watched this on a digital format, and it could have been from the audio digital like lag, bad connection or something. But that first scene where you see Winslow Leach performing, and he's just got the piano, he's just by himself, and he's doing the real – like Elton John really throwing it in there. Is it just from me watching on digital and being leggy or is the audio and the visual off from each other? Like decidedly pretty off where it just seems, looks like he's lip syncing or something. Was that just my I, copy of it? I honestly didn't notice. I have the Blu-ray of it, so I didn't notice well, it to be touch on this conspicuous. Touch on this again, but – me watching it, I was that was the first big music, you know, after the Juicy Fruits, it was the first big, <laughs> yeah, musical outing for Winslow. And right off the top, I'm going, This guy is either not singing this song or this is supposed to be f- funny in a, a wackadoo way. It kind of took me out of it because of the the amount of lat- latency between the audio and his. I'm, 
I'm wondering because I I didn't notice that personally. Yeah, yeah I didn't. So I didn't it could have just been a fuck up. Um, okay, so here's my next question: How did Winslow get into the orgy? I mean, when when they're in the <laughs> when they're in the harem uh, or whatever, he gets kicked out by the bouncers, and then like the next right. scene, he's just dressed up like a hideous chick on that circle bed it's like how did he get a pass <laughs> i mean did, did, did they not realize that bug-eyed fucking dennis weaver is back you know <laughs> back in action didn't didn't he like didn't he like uh crawl into this the suitcase on like the conveyor belt or is that when he got into the studio that's, that's later, later that's, that's, later. that's he did, when he he does a lot of that's when he skips. Yeah, out it does a lot of. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Which, you know, I've only seen this movie one time. Yeah. So. so, and that's that's my that's my next question is that so that scene when they're making the tiddlywinks games in prison and that face yeah. it just pans to him and that face of absolute suffering and misery, perfect says it all. But and I love it. But it is. It's very obvious to follow, you know, he flips out, he, he runs, he trashes the radio or the TV or whatever. He jumps in a box in a conveyor belt. All the guards see him. And then he somehow slips inconspicuously into one of the box trucks. It's like they can't just yeah. figure out which truck he's in and he gets the fuck out of there. That I thought was real weird. I mean, how did they allow that to happen? And why? So moments. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Mo- moments like that are when I I started to think like, okay, like they're being silly on purpose, right? And for that reason, <laughs> I sound like I'm on fucking you know uh, Shark Tank. For that reason, I'm out. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like for that reason, that's where, where I'm, I'm I'm establishing like, okay, the. Some of the creativity in this is is too it, it's too advanced for this, you know. It kind of takes you out of it because you go, yeah. Am, "Is this serious or are they being funny?" I'm not sure right. how because it's coming that, across as being very funny. It's it's like all of a sudden you're in like a, the middle of a Three Stooges episode. Exactly, and he like climbs into that box, and then know, when so. he falls out, and it's a it's a little bit faster. The frames move a little faster when he falls out of the yeah. back of the truck, right? So while you're thinking about that. Think about this. When the warden at Sing Sing says, he says something to the effect of, you know, teeth are a source of infection. So we're going to pull all of your teeth out. When have you ever heard of pulling all of your teeth out as being cleanly? I mean, I've known people who've died from root canal infections and, uh, you know, all kinds of shit like that. So if your first thought, is to tear someone's teeth out to save them from infection. Seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. Uh, well, I think that's the whole point. It's clearly not for the benefit of the of the prisoners. It's clearly it's a torture method, and they're dressing it up cynically as, "Oh, this is for your own good." Ha ha! We're gonna tear all your fucking teeth out. Uh, yeah, and I'll take that. I mean. Uh, like John watching it for the first time and I've seen these things come up I don't really have time to gestate on what 
what the what the uh, intention was. So comes a question. Yeah. Uh, did you guys catch this? Did you guys catch the the Nazi memorabilia on Swan's death record gang jackets? Yeah, I mean that's just because it's a reference to the Hell's Angels. Sure. Who all wore swastikas yeah and stuff yeah like that. there was just one scene in particular where leech is locked up in the compound or whatever and the dude that's on the right side of the door he's got the he's got a, a badge on his like a breast badge breastplate badge on his denim that's the uh it's like the the nazi war eagle or whatever and it's hard to see because it's a quick yeah. shot but i had to wind it back and <laughs> for sure it was that's what it was. Just wanted to. I wanted to confirm that with you guys. Yeah. Oh, the last thing I have on my questionable. In the end, um, I think it's when Phoenix does her song. The crowd goes from a total riot, like absolute insane Vietnam bonkers on stage, all of this, to when Phoenix is doing her song. To immediately sitting and quiet, <laughs> yeah, kind of. The 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 music just lulled the beast. Yeah, it was just just a crowd <laughs> ultimate crowd killer. If you know what I'm saying, captivating <laughs> crowd killer. But that's it. That's all I got for my questions. M- more than anything, it was most of my questions are just confirming my suspicions about things. Uh, yeah. yeah. The main the main question I had, and this also ties in with this kind of theme, this discussion we keep having about how uh, there, there's a there's a, a false complexity almost sometimes to this to this movie conceptually, and I've noticed this. There's uh, this kind of idea has been touched upon in other rock opera kind of based uh, movies. But it's this idea of condensing very complex, sophisticated forms of music into more palatable pop formats. And that is obviously clear with taking Winslow's 300-page cantata and thinking that you can somehow shoehorn it into this pop format that is... (laughs) consumable by the masses it's like you're biting off a little more than you need to chew there uh i don't know if either one of you guys have ever seen eddie and the cruisers have either one you have you seen it okay that was one thing that i was thought was funny about eddie and the cruisers is eddie uh before he dies is known for mythically creating what is his like big opus and it's a reference to the French symbolist poet Arthur Rimbaud, who I've talked about this before on the podcast. I am somewhat of a layman um, uh, student of French symbolist poetry, and R- Arthur Rimbaud is actually one of my favorite poets. But he had a poem that he wrote before he eventually dipped out of writing poetry called um, A Season in Hell. And the concept in... <laughs> Eddie and the Cruisers is is that Eddie, who is this fucking greaseball rocker guy from Jersey, is taking this 
epic poem and turning it into his concept record. So he goes from being just like this kind of like, you know, doo-wopping rock and roller to, oh, I'm going to take this this epic poem and shoehorn it into like a rock concept record. I don't understand why like some of these directors and people like that, they decide like to be this high minded in those regards, you know, where it's just like, you don't need to make it like that. And I don't buy buy it that somebody's going to take Winslow's fucking whole cantata and turn it into this piecemeal pop fucking like, you know, consumable format. I think personally, my answer to that would be that I think that like, Ultimately, what they're looking for is talent. That, yeah. And it, this kind of speaks to what they're going to water down to make their product. You know, so yeah. it's like it almost actually, in my opinion, almost perfectly illustrates how it really is. Because what they're looking for yeah. is somebody that can essentially do the hard part while they do what's the easy part, which is just making it bullshit. Pol- yeah it's like the opposite of polishing a turd you know like, it's like yeah. it's like it's like the opposite it's like almost like taking a, a a nice jewel and covering it in marketable diarrhea you know like well, essentially that yeah. that is what that speaks to in my opinion it's like they're looking for the talent because that's the part that they can't do right Right. But what they can do is yeah. they can take like a thousand gigabytes of talent and condense it down to into like a megabyte of bullshit, basically. Yeah. So that's yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of like my answer sure. to that. Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't disagree. Also, it's just, it's just funny to me that you know, again, taking like these very sophisticated ideas and yeah, and then trying to like you know condense them in in these certain ways. So. It was just a thought I had, but I, I do I do understand what you're saying and, and, and agree also. Okay, anything else? Yeah, I think I'm going to start a band called Marketable Diarrhea. That's good. <laughs> that, that's, a hot, that's a hot like take it. right there. That's hot. That's hot. <laughs> anyway, no, I, I think I'm All good. Right. Life and death. Salutations from the other side. This section of the podcast, we're going to move into our awards and categories section. And here we go. And to top it off, we've got quotes. I've got some quotes. We've already talked about one. I'm sure we all agree that one of them is a highlight is a get this fag (laughs) out of here. Right. Uh, uh, Another one I like a lot is when uh, Beef says to uh, uh, Philbin, a dry up. Yeah, oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> I like his little, his little sassy way of shutting Philbin down. <laughs> then one final one I had was, and this is uh, Leech talking to uh, Phoenix. I would never let my personal desires get in the way of my aesthetic uh-huh. judgment. Yep. 
Yeah. It's pretty, pretty badass quote. My, uh, I had, I, I only put one quote down because it just, it's, it's said it all for me. So when Swan is at, uh, I guess you'd call it like the press release for finding beef. And it just says, I give you the future beef. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that made that made That's me uh, made me laugh out loud when I read that. Oh, lol. That. What about what about you, John? You got any? I uh, no, I already stated mine. I think that's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the winner. I think of it. Winner, winner. In, in the seventies is is all you know. Yeah. All I needed right there. For sure. So we got a new slate of uh, awards here that. Um, was a collaboration between Brandon and I. So we'll see if they stick. Um, I think these are good ones. Uh, at the top, we've got the Derek Zoolander award for the biggest rube in the movie. I hate to say it, but it's, it's, it's Winslow Lee. Yeah. He gets fucking, he gets just worked over to the nines. This dude, as much as like, uh, he's a sweetheart, man, he just can't get a break. Yep. Of course. Of course. I mean, that, that is, that is the low hanging fruit. You know, the movie is basically predicated around this genius who is kind of an idiot savant. He has no street smarts with people. Um, I I would, in a way, if I'm thinking outside of the box here, I would say that beef is a close second. (laughs) I was going to say that, too. For just an absolute doofus who who has no compass for what's actually happening. Or maybe he does and he just doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that as well to a certain extent. The thing is, like you said, this is also a a tale as old as time with Winslow Leach is the genius artist or creative person that has no practical wits or street smarts whatsoever so and that's what happened again time and time again and still happens to this day are people that are brilliant at creating music and art but fuck man they can't balance a checkbook i will will they can't do their own taxes i will say this just to contradict that a little bit um the the thing that makes leech's character like like great for this is that like i mean i think a lot of people that get exploited aren't as they don't need to be as klutzy, you know, like like people that get exploited are still totally like totally just fine in the real world, but they just, they just are no match for like master manipulators. Right. And I think that what makes this funny is that like, you don't need to be that smart to like, fuck this guy, you know? Right. Like he's just like such a, like it almost like you know it reminded me of like almost like the Three Stooges in a way where it's like, I mean obviously those dudes aren't br- brilliant but you know like that there's no like a lot of people that get exploited like I was saying are like totally like not they're they're not at a disadvantage really they're just kind of average right. you know and this guy is like yeah. below average in his street smarts so that's like the the difference I would say. Certainly, certainly. I agree. Um, the next word is the Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat Award for Best Wardrobe, Makeup, Costume, etc. Well, once again, I give it to Winslow, but as the Phantom, and then in a close second, Beef. What do you guys got? Uh, well, I give it to Swan. I was going to say Swan because I just, man, he really sets it off as being 
that fucking glam megalomaniac of the time, but at the same time, it's just, <laughs> oh man, he's hard to look at for me. <laughs> but that's how they that's how they all but, looked. That was the fucking way. Yep. Yeah, yep. I, I give it to Swan. So it's a good bad. You're it's saying. a good bad. It's a good in in the direction of playing the character, but but it's bad for me per, on a personal level. He's unfuckable yeah. to me. <laughs> he is really. I rarely, I rarely say that because I am a fast and loose slut. But uh, Swan is <laughs> unfuckable. It very, very, yeah, he's but that very well designed character though, visually and aesthetically. Yeah, of course, right. Because again, a lot with a lot of those guys, a lot of the the guys pulling the strings and the puppet masters. Uh, I was just reading a book about the the L.A. Uh, rock scene and how it was gestating in the '60s into the '70s, and they talk about the guys that weren't the musicians themselves, but were, you know, whatever, like the promoters or the label execs or the managers, you know, the guys that, that were kind of almost like the parasites to a certain extent and how, yeah, a lot of them, they weren't attractive. They weren't like good looking guys, but they were getting just as much puss as the musicians were because, you know, they had the money, they had the influence, they had the connections. And that's how, that's how Swan is. That's, also, that's people right. people just you want know. to be around success. You know, yeah, of course. And yep. It doesn't, and, and and it doesn't matter if you get it by fucking somebody or not. Like, if that's what's happening and that's where people want to be around, like that's who's going to get the people around them. You know, it's true. That's uh, the shit attracting the flies for sure. All right, the next category is the Cosmo Kramer Award for most likely to appear in a Seinfeld episode. I don't know, this one was kind of tough, I guess, but I just said Philbin. I can see Philbin being a guy, like, living in Jerry's apartment complex and or whatever. Or, like, I just recently watched one of the Seinfeld episodes where it's one where uh, Jerry gets roped into doing the bootleg videos by the guy Brody, who's just this guy, you know what I'm talking about? They even kind of look alike like in the face. Right. So I imagine like Philbin being like a Brody type character where he's strong arms Jerry into making bootleg films for him. Yeah, I I said Philbin too, but I said I I thought of him as like one of the offshoot pals of Newman or something that kind of comes comes (laughs) in as like a Kramer Newman connection, you know? Yeah, I I could see Philbin just being like one of the guys that like owns one of the stores that they go into, you know, like on Seinfeld, you know, there's always like some owner that's kind of like, you know, chill and laid back. Um, I could, I could see Philbin just playing that, like the owner of like that used record store they go into in that one episode or, you know, like the, the guy that works at the cleaners, you know, that's kind of what I could see, but I, I, I agree. Well, we all agree that it's Philbin in various capacities in some episode, which sidebar, I wanted to say, I'm glad that you brought up the dude in the used record store because you know who that is, the guy who plays that that record it's, store isn't guy. It, uh, isn't it Jigsaw? Yep. I always thought that was hilarious so that that's insane. Jigsaw from Saw. It's insane. <laughs> what is that guy's name? What is yeah. his real name? I always... 
I always forget that actor's wow. name, but yeah, I just love that. Always cracks me up whenever I think about. Dude, this. it's very funny um, because he's so visibly like not young, but also so much younger than he is now. His name is Tobin <laughs> right. Bell. Thank you, Tobin Bell. Which you would think you would remember that name. It's pretty memorable. Yeah, kind of like Bell. Kurt Wood Smith. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like Kurtwood Smith, exactly. Um, all right, our final award, the Danny Trejo Award for character most likely to have a spinoff. This was my reference to Machete. Mm-hmm. But I said beef. I could see without beef, but let's say maybe there's like a prequel or an origin story to beef that gets spun off. But before he gets uh, he gets uh, smoked by the Phantom. But that's what so, I had was beef. Uh, so I, I came out with Swan. I even came up with a title with his, with a spinoff. It would be the Swanicles, the life, <laughs> the life of an industry playboy. Um, I, love I it. like that. That's good. It's pretty good. I mean, can't argue with that. I, I, I don't really, I yeah. don't really have one in this, in this regard, but I'm sold on both of yours for sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Uh, moving on to the wiki wormhole and to top it off, we got a body count. Uh, I counted four, I believe. So we got beef. We've got the yeah. phantom. Yeah. We've got swan and we've got Phil. Now, did nobody got, nobody got killed in the, in the bomb car bomb scene, right? So that's, yeah, that's speculative because. It doesn't show it wasn't anybody. Confirmed. It doesn't show bodies. Yeah. wasn't confirmed, but it is. It is implied that something happened. So, but I don't know how many people. Okay, let's just say for sure, definitively, we have four on-screen deaths. Gotcha. I'm, I'm cool with that number. Yeah, yeah, that that tracks. Okay. Now the wiki wormhole, or the do the bullshit internet research portion of the podcast this one's crazy according to william finley the record press in which his character uh winslow leach was disfigured was in a real pressing plant it was an injection molding press at an ideal company plant ideal toy company plant he was worried about whether the machine would be safe and the crew assured him it was the press was fitted with foam pads which resemble the casting molds in the press and there were chocks put in the center to stop it from closing completely. Unfortunately, the machine was powerful enough to crush the chocks <laughs> that it gradually kept closing. It was Finley's speed and timing that saved him from being seriously hurt as he got his head out just in time. His scream in the scene was, in fact, not acting. Yeah, I read that. This dude, like, has almost got his face fucking mashed for real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just about That's got awesome. just about got stampered. That's brutal. Um, in an interview with the New York Times, the two members of Daft Punk cite this as our favorite film, the foundation for a lot of what we're about artistically. If you notice Daft Punk's helmets, they resemble uh, the Phantoms. And claim to have uh, seen it over 20 times. Paul Williams, who composed the music of the film and played Swan, appeared on Daft Punk's album Random Access Memories. Hmm. Nice. There you go. Uh, here's this is for you, John. Uh, in addition to Gaston LaRose, the Phantom of the Opera, and Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Faust, this film also references Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, 
Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, and Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. A total of at least five citations of classic horror stories. There you go. That makes That's sense. Cool. Yep. Uh, the electronic room in which Winslow Leach composes cantata and where Swan restores his voice is in fact an actual recording studio, the record plant. The walls covered with knobs are in reality a huge custom-built Moog synthesizer. Dubbed Tonto, this instrument was featured on several albums by the pioneering electronic duo, also called Tonto, but as an acronym. Oh, the Tonto Exploiting, Exploding Expanding Headband. headband. Expanding. Sorry, expanding headband. Fuck. And it still exists. Tonto is now on permanent exhibit at the National Music Center in Calgary. Sorry, it wasn't Manitoba. Alberta, Canada, and is still available for use to any artist. So there you go. You know, if you got a wild hair up your ass, you can go up and put Tonto to work in your next album. Yeah, and it's, I like that it says um, available for use to any artist. You know? Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what, what is it? Why why buy the why buy the steak when you can get the cow for free? <laughs> <laughs> right. I was just in Calgary and I didn't know this. I if I would have known, I would have tried to go and pay a visit to Tonto up there in Calgary next time. Who knows? Uh, at the airport, when glam rock singer Beef is introduced, the Death Records logo on the lectern was superimposed. Over the original logo for Swan Song Records, this is what I was talking about with the optically uh, matted uh, logos all over the place, to avoid conflict with Led Zeppelin's record label, which had sued Brian De Palma's production company, <clears throat> which they would, of course. It's funny that like Led Zeppelin were litigious about this because Led Zeppelin ripped off Dude, so many fucking they people. And the they nearly fact- have not written their own <laughs> composition. At like not even one. They're right up there with Elvis. It's fucked. I know, like fucking pricks. Uh, so, anyways, uh, yeah. So that's all over. I'm not gonna go uh, uh, into detail, but all those death logos on everything is because they had to do it in post so they could avoid getting fucking reamed by uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Page gotcha. and company. The old cease and desist. Yeah, uh, sissy Spacek worked as a set dresser for this film to assist her boyfriend, Jack Fisk, who was the film's production designer. According to Spacek, she did her job so poorly that she ruined a day's worth of filming. (laughs) Spacek had also auditioned for the role of Phoenix, but lost out to Jessica Harper. She ended up winning in the end because, of course, you know, two years later, she played the titular role in Mm -hmm. Carrie. So that's awesome. There you go. I mean. So, so Brian De Palma, forgiving man. <laughs> I support. A, I, I support a full day's worth of filming being ruined anytime. Hell yeah! Right. <laughs> uh, Jessica Harper beat out Linda Ronstadt for the f- role of Phoenix. That would have been something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Shit. The f- the film was a box office office flop the year it came out. The only place in North America where it wasn't uh, was in Winnipeg. Uh-huh. Which I mentioned. Is that where they? Is that where they made their big three hundred ninety-five bucks? <laughs> you betcha. And uh, what is it? Uh, Canadian loonies or yeah. whatever they call. Them. Uh, in the original screenplay of Phantom of the Paradise, the villainous character Swan was named Spectre, and that character was loosely based on record producer Phil Spectre. So that that tracks. That makes a lot of sense. Phil Spectre being a notably unhinged. Uh, Record that sure ended well. 
Yeah, right. Uh, I'm going to glaze over some of these. I got a lot. So let's see. Uh, I already talked about that. Uh, Brian De Palma considered hiring either the Rolling Stones or the Who to portray the different male singing groups in the movie. However, of course, they were too expensive. <laughs> um, Phantom of the Paradise is Nicolas Cage's favorite Brian De Palma film. Shout out to our boy, Nicholas Coppola, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Nicholas Cage. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. That's stuff we already talked about. Yeah, we'll just wrap it up with that. So there we go. There's your wiki wormhole. So now we've entered the final phases of this first episode of Midnight Flicks uh, Redux Season 4. And this is the part where we get to rating the movie. And as some of you may know, uh, we like to create an iconography for the movie. So, boys, what do we say out of five what do we rate this movie? Five Uh, Phantom Masks. Uh, That's a good one. What do you? Say? I'm gonna say five melted faces due to a phonograph record pressing. Yeah, you know metal yeah. teeth. So, <laughs> I mean, there's all <laughs> kinds of shit in this. Uh, yeah, that's. The, I would say yeah. Out of five phantom masks, that sounds pretty good. Uh, gentlemen, John, what do you give this out of five phantom masks? I'm gonna give it a two and a half. Two and a half. Brandon. Uh, you know, I, I had a great time the whole time, um, but I can't say that it's perfect. I, I, I'm going to give it a high three. So let's say a three and a half Phantom Masks. Okay. I'm going to split the diff. I like this movie a lot. Uh, I will say that upon um, repeated viewing, one thing I wanted to mention when you were talking about how you felt about this, John, and this is a hearkening back to uh, my uh, – my uh, long lost pod daddy, Pat Mitchell. One thing that he would point out is rewatchability. And that's, you know, that's how he would rate movies. And uh, it, I feel like this affected uh, you uh, in a manner where you felt the, the, the rewatchability level of this is, is low. Would you say for you? Right. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I will say uh, upon repeated watches of, of this, it doesn't hold up as well as maybe, it does in previous watches, but I do like this movie a lot. I do like what De Palma was at least trying to achieve. I'm going to split the diff. I'm going to give it three out of five Phantom Masks. Okay. And I'm, I'm still standing by two and a half melted faces. That's fair <laughs> enough. How about this? We're going to, we're going to combine the two and say out of two and a half melted faces in there Phantom Masks. There you go. It all has something to do there with his go. busted ass grill. There you go. Right. Precisely. Okay. Fantastic, gentlemen. Well, so on next week's episode, we're going to discuss Brandon's oh, yeah. pick. So, Brandon, drum roll, please. This is one of, yeah. this is one of my faves. This is uh, – we're going to get spooky. We're going to get mind-bending mm. and spooky. We're going to watch 2001's Session 9. It's a Brad Anderson film. I don't know if you're familiar with his with his canon. Um, probably the most popular movie that would come to most people's mind would be Trans-Siberian or uh, The Machinist. This one's uh, yeah. a little bit of a sleeper, I think, to a lot of people, but uh, I absolutely love it. And ever since I've heard the podcast, I've wanted to 
wanted a, a dis, to at least hear a discussion about this movie. Have you se- have either of you seen this movie? Not nope. to be confused with District 9, which is some fucking wackadoo 2000s alien movie. Yeah. No, I have, and we've talked about it before, Brandon. I, I like this movie quite a lot, and this movie has a lot of layers, and I feel it requires repeat watches. So just just letting you know. Here there might Don, be some questions. That, you might have some questions. Yeah, you might have a lot of questions. There's definitely some things to kind of unpack with this movie. But yeah, I love Brand Anderson, Brad Anderson. Um, the Machinist is like one of my favorite movies. So I'm glad that you brought that one to the table. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Stoked. I'm always always happy to rewatch it. I'm excited too. Cool. <laughs> next next time, uh, ladies and germs. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for our intro music. Our producer for today's episode is Barth Gloam, and our sponsor for tonight is who is it? There's juice. The juice is loose. It's Dayton's own prune private reserve. Keep that mail moving. Keep it regular. That's right. We like being regular here on the podcast. We like we like to keep the uh, the BM flowing. And we're going to bring back our original idea with the band of the week, hopefully. And for this week's band of the week, we've got Endorphins Lost. Take it away, Brandon. Gonna, What's the song? We're going to hear the do? myth of modern medicine on the third full length by Endorphins Lost called Night People. Fantastic. John, do you got anything to uh, sign off with? You got anything to plug? Uh, yeah, I've got some new stomach shit coming out. I've uh, recorded an entire second demo and an entire full length, and hopefully both will be released sometime in the next 2,000 years. My man is is moving, moving. Speaking of moving things, speaking of stomachs and gastric acids and bowel movements and all that. Uh, All right. Well, gentlemen, I've had a fantastic time, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time when we talk about Spooky Yuki District. District 9. I said it. I fucked up. Owned it. Session 9. Session 9. Don't watch District 9. That shit's... Don't watch watch District 9. Watch Session 9. All right. Good night. Bye-bye. Cool.